everyone. It's your host, Polly Siegel. And for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, certified addiction specialist, and master level trained mindfulness practitioner. I own a counseling practice in both Colorado and Illinois, and I specialize in trauma, OCD, and anxiety. If you live in either of those two states, feel free to reach out to me for a consultation and we can begin the therapeutic journey together. Now on to the good shit. Welcome to season three of Shit Talking Shrinks. Gosh, I'm so excited. I will be featuring experts in the healing space and we're discussing a variety of mental health topics, the human experience, and society at large while creating levity along the way. Get ready to laugh, learn a lot, and change your life for good. This episode is sponsored by Joyous. Okay, I have to tell you about this incredible company, Joyous. It's an at-home ketamine treatment that delivers ketamine to your door for $129 a month, which is absolutely unheard of because most ketamine treatment is hella expensive. And what ketamine does is it helps our prefrontal cortex work more optimally. And the prefrontal cortex helps with decision-making, problem-solving, emotional regulation. It's the part of the brain that gets us through hard shit. And so if you're someone who has struggled with anxiety and depression and you've tried antidepressants or you've tried mood stabilizers and they haven't helped, ketamine is absolutely the next step. And I have seen my clients thrive while using ketamine. Joyous makes it super easy to access this life-changing medicine. And you can start the process by visiting www.joyous.team. You guys, you got to get on it and try it. Trust me, you won't look back. Hello, everyone. I have a very, very, very special guest today, Cody Green, who honestly, like your journey and your story and the work you do is really profound and special. And so it's an honor to be in front of you today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So Cody is a mental health advocate and speaker, has a really phenomenal story and is making such an impact in just the mental health community, specifically around schizophrenia. And the topic today is mental illness and incarceration. And I think it's something that we don't talk about that often. It's still very stigmatized. So I'm hoping that our listeners today can learn a little bit more about your journey with mental illness and the criminal justice system. Also speaking to sort of the pitfalls and how our criminal justice system really isn't equipped to work with people that have mental illness and there isn't a foundation put in place for people that need more support in that area. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My own experience kind of illustrates a lot of that too. Just when I was going through my addiction that led to my incarceration, by the time I was finally put in jail, I couldn't get access to any help. I realized that I probably needed it. And the entire time that I was incarcerated, I didn't get a diagnosis. I didn't have any sort of ability to reach out and get the help I needed. So it's definitely something I'm passionate about because there are a lot of flaws in the system currently. And it's definitely something that needs to be addressed for the safety of not only the people being incarcerated, but the safety of everyone involved. So tell us your journey. I started having schizophrenia symptoms around 19 years old. So I was just getting into college. I was raised by a mother with schizoaffective disorder. So we always knew there was a chance I could develop schizophrenia spectrum illness. 
up until that point, I had never showed any symptoms. My first year of college, I had a psychotic break and I started having auditory and visual hallucinations as well as paranoia and delusions. This led to me struggling with addiction. I was using drugs as a way to try to cope with what I was hearing and what I was seeing. And although that didn't work, that was the only way I could think of to try to cope with what I was going through. And so that eventually led to my incarceration and me being put in jail for drug-related crimes. And so the whole process was really frustrating because I didn't really know what was going on. Even looking back, it's hard to remember a lot of that time period just because on top of being you know, delusional and paranoid, I was also coping with drug use. And so it was a very confusing time. I didn't reach out for help right away. But then when I did start to reach out for help, wasn't until I was finally in jail. And then by that point, nobody could get me resources. Nobody was willing to let me see a specialist. And so it wasn't until after I got out of jail that I was able to get my formal diagnosis. At the time, it was undifferentiated schizophrenia. I know now it's diagnosed as a spectrum. So it was a several year period where I was struggling and trying to get help and a diagnosis and I couldn't. A lot of that was because of my incarceration at the time. Yeah. So if I'm tracking, you are already experiencing hallucinations and paranoia, you know, using substances as a way to cope and deal with what was going on. And then you're put in jail and they have no support system to help with those symptoms. Yeah, exactly. It's like when I was out, you know, I was using substances to self-medicate, which isn't a great method, but it was what I was doing at the time. And then I went in and the one thing that I had, I didn't have access to anymore. And so it was just being able to have those distractions on the outside, being able to see people and talk to people, being put into jail kind of eliminated that. So I didn't have distractions. I didn't have access to the only coping mechanism that I knew. And so that's when I realized, hey, there's definitely something wrong with me. I know that like what I'm feeling isn't normal. I think it helped having been raised by, you know, someone who has schizophrenia. And so I knew kind of what the symptoms look like. And it took me a long time to admit that that's what was going on with me. It took me a long time also because I didn't believe that's what was going on at the time, didn't really see that I had an issue. But once I did and I went to go get help, they took it as me trying to get out of myself for longer, me trying to get medication or trying to get attention from the guards. And so no one took it seriously. I went, you know, the entire time I was in jail without any sort of help. And it wasn't until after I got out that I was able to meet with a doctor who was able to get me to a psychiatrist and get me medication and treatment. It just felt like such a long process that could have been sped up if the current United States prison and jail systems were set up to help people with disorders. Because as someone who was incarcerated, I always tell people the thing that shocked me the most when I went in was the amount of people that were in there. Very few were bad people. Most of the people I met were either struggling with a substance abuse disorder or were seriously mentally ill and not getting treatment. A lot of the people currently in our jail and prison systems really should be in either outpatient facilities or some sort of recovery clinics. A lot of the people struggling in jails and prisons aren't getting the help they need. And that's why we see a lot of recidivism 
and a lot of people going back is because they get out, they still don't have access to that care and they end up right back in. What's really fascinating to me and what you're sharing is that you were trying to advocate for yourself in jail and saying, like, I'm not feeling good. I'm having these symptoms. Something's wrong with me. And instead of there being curiosity and, hey, let me get you to a psychiatrist or, you know, a medical professional to assess, it was dismissed and just, I would imagine, told to, like, fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. I actually remember I had told uh, one of the correction officers what was going on. I was like, I really need to go talk to someone. And they're like, you can't. And I was like, I'm having issues. And I'll never forget it because they say this all the time. No matter what you're dealing with, guards and COs love to say, well, if you don't like it, then don't come to jail. That was an actual response I got to me asking to get help because I felt like something was wrong. I knew that I needed help. No one would take it seriously. And then I was almost mocked when I did try to get that help. And so a lot of the people currently in the system right now are just, they're not even trying to get help. They know it's a waste of time. I was actually told by several inmates when I started mentioning it, because I had talked about it with other inmates before I decided to let COs know that I was struggling. The response is like, everyone just knows. Everyone currently in the system who's been there for a while knows once you go in, you're not going to get help. Even if you do, it sounds like the facilities that they have for people with severe mental illness are not ones that you want to be in. I was actually talked out of trying to get help by several of the other inmates because they had described to me situations where other people had went in and the treatment was even worse than what they experienced in like general population. This is maybe subjective personal insight and opinion here, Cody, but why do you feel that the system isn't equipped, nor are they prepared for inmates that are struggling with substance abuse and mental illness? If so much of the population is experiencing that, how has the system not accommodated what is happening? There's a lot of different things that I think are factors in what's wrong. One of the biggest being early on, we're still criminalizing mental illness and addiction. So these people shouldn't be a part of this system in the first place. There should be different avenues to get help before jail becomes the only option. When I was incarcerated, it was my first time ever being charged, ever being in trouble. It ended up being a really bad situation. I ended up getting sober and trying to get help before I was even put in. No one cared. I was going through the system and they wanted to get me through court. They wanted to sentence me. There was no option to meet with a psychiatrist, meet with a doctor. And so you get rushed through the system. And a lot of the people who are going in shouldn't be there. They should be in some sort of either mental health facility or recovery clinic. Most of the people currently sitting in jail or prison in America are either in for crimes related directly to mental health or mental illness or directly related to substance abuse disorders. As I'm like taking in what you're saying, and it's really profound, it's like the system doesn't have compassion or empathy for that being the driver or the root cause of criminal acts. I was really shocked when I went in. I had went in for drug-related crimes, and I had never intentionally harmed anyone. I had never in my life been what I would in the past consider a criminal. And so when I went in, I was really, I was really shocked to see how I was treated by the guards and the COs. 
treated like just a horrible person, like I was some sort of terrible criminal. And like I said, I had definitely made mistakes at that point. I was using substances. It just blew my mind that I didn't look at myself as a criminal, as a bad person. I looked at myself as someone who was making bad choices, who had made some mistakes, needed help. And that's not how people are treated in the system. And so kind of strips away the humanity of people who do want to get out, do better and get help. They start seeing themselves as, you know, a bad person, as some sort of criminal, because they're surrounded by other people who are also either in for drug related crimes or maybe crimes that were a little more serious. And you start identifying because those are the people you're surrounded with. So you start identifying with those people. And that's why if there's no programs in place to help people do better and get the help they need, it just leads to really high recidivism rates and people coming back and people making the same mistakes. I want to take a quick pause to talk about our sponsor, a company called BetterHelp. It's an online therapy platform where all the therapists are licensed and accredited professionals. It's affordable. You pay a low flat fee for therapy with your therapist, and it's convenient. Do it at your own time and at your own pace, and you can communicate with your therapist as much as you want and whenever you feel is needed. And more importantly, it's effective. Thousands of people have benefited from therapy using BetterHelp, and we're really grateful to offer all of our listeners 10% off your first month. So if you're interested in receiving therapy ASAP, click the link in our show notes and you can get started and you get to save money. What I'm struggling to understand, and hopefully you can provide insight, why aren't we putting money into these programs versus our tax dollar going into everything it takes to run you know, jails and prisons? Why aren't we putting money into these programs so that we can reduce the amount of inmates? It's a super good question. I think part of the problem is still for-profit prisons, right? As long as they're prisons that are for-profit, they're going to take any money invested into prisons and they're going to put it wherever helps them increase profit. They're going to put it into having people work jobs that can make the prison money. They're going to put it into very basic resources for prisoners. They're not going to actually use it for beneficial programs unless they're forced to. It's not making them any money. It's doing the opposite. If for-profit prisons are getting lower recidivism rates, there's less people going in and less money for those facilities. So I think for-profit prisons are a big part of the issue. It also just comes down to the fact that jails and prisons in America are still looked at as punishment and not as a form of rehabilitation. And I think that needs to change in order for people to take those types of programs seriously. There definitely are facilities throughout the United States that are doing better with providing courses, providing access to talk to a doctor or psychiatrist, but it's not consistent and it's very sporadic. Like from the people I know that I have also been incarcerated, very few were at facilities that were trying to rehabilitate people. It was mostly, this is a punishment, deal with it, and hopefully you get out and don't come back is more of how it's treated. And so that's what I think are the biggest issues, just because if you're not trying to rehabilitate people, you're just having an endless cycle of people coming back over and over again. It almost seems like there's, because you're already determined as bad, 
And because there's the moral tag that's been placed on you, that there's no true investment in wanting these individuals to get better. And so the system isn't created to allow for there to be effective change, rehabilitation, like you said, and allow individuals to start a new path forward that's going to be healthy. The system doesn't give a shit about it. So of course, there's not programs or support or resources in place, because if you don't care about someone, why would you put in the effort to help them? Is that how it felt as an inmate? Oh, 100%. Yeah. At the point where you're brought in, it kind of feels like society's given up on you because especially for people who do get like felonies, you know that as soon as you get out, depending on what state you're in, you lose almost all of your rights. It's hard to rent. It's hard to find jobs. And so you know all of this. People talk about it when they're in jail. And then it makes it really scary to get back out, knowing that when you get out, it's going to be hard just to live. And so that's why recidivism rates get to be so high and why people constantly go back in is because they get out and there's nothing for them out there. In some states, you can't apply for rental applications if you're a felon. I know in a lot of states, too, I mean, you lose your voting rights, you lose your ability to possess an own firearm. So you lose a lot of the basic rights that people have. Not being able to vote is nuts to me that states still do that, because as someone who, you know, I'm a mental health advocate now. And in some states, if I was living there, I wouldn't be able to vote. You know, I haven't been incarcerated since 2015. I don't have as much as even a speeding ticket on my record since then. In some states, if I was living there, I would have lost my right to vote forever. And I think that's a lot of what it is, too. It's keeping people from, you know, poverty stricken backgrounds and backgrounds that are a little more complex from being able to cast their votes and being able to find success in other aspects of their lives, too. It's a system that's set in place to prey on certain groups and individuals. And it's very easy to see that once you become a part of it. And you can see the people that are affected. You start to see a lot of patterns, a lot of consistency. It's really frustrating knowing that none of it's really changing. It makes me very sad. It makes me very sad to hear this because I think there are so many people due to a variety of variables that have gotten into a situation or a certain lifestyle and because of certain mistakes. And I don't even know if some of them are mistakes. They might just be survival mechanisms because that's what you had to do to stay alive and safe. And I mean that not metaphorically. I mean, really, truly alive and safe that now they're punished for life and that the system doesn't invest in helping them get better. And it's like, what the fuck are we doing then? It's incredibly frustrating. It's just as frustrating being out of the system now as when I was in it, because I mean, my job now is to like advocate for people and help people. So I have gone back and spoken at like jails and prisons to inmates. It's really hard to answer questions like, from inmates who are wondering, like, what is there to expect when I get out? Because they have heard from other people and I can paint a nice picture all I want, but it's really difficult. And I live in a state that's a little more accepting. Like we do have jobs that you can get in Wisconsin with a felony pretty easily. We also, you know, there's no preventing me from being able to rent. There is like 
the ability to get my voting rights back too. So after I was done with probation, I did get my voting rights back. But like a lot of states don't have those resources. They don't allow you to get some of those rights back. And so there's a lot of states where once you go in, no matter what it was for, if you went in because it was addiction related or it was mental health related and you were just trying to survive, you get out and you're blacklisted now. There's so many things you can't do, including finding a job, you know, or being able to find a simple place to live. The fact that there are people in certain states that can't just find a place to live because of a felony or a criminal record is insane to me because if they don't have friends or family, they literally will have nowhere to go. And where else are they going to go but right back into the system? I worked in community mental health before I started my private practice. And I'll never forget this session that I had. It's burned in my memory. It was someone who was, you know, recently released from prison for drug-related charges. And he was working incredibly hard to stay sober. And he said to me, I don't want to go back. And I said, okay, well, then what, what do we need to do to allow for you to be successful this time around? And he said, here's the problem, Paulina. I can't get a job. I can't find a place to live. What do you want me to do? It was such a powerful moment because I didn't have a great answer. And that was really hard as a mental health professional to feel like I wasn't able to provide helpful guidance. As he continued to process in session and in share, it was glaringly clear to me that like, if I can't get a job and I can't find a place to live, I need to make money. And what I know is hustle. Like that's what's going to allow me to live and be okay and not be, you know, homeless on the streets. That's exactly right. Because it's, if there's nothing else to do, people are going to go to what they know. So that's why a lot of addicts will go back to using too, because they don't want to go back to those situations. But if they don't have friends, they don't have family, and they can't rent a place or find a job, they end up going back to living with the same people they were that were probably using and probably having them sell just to make money. And so I'm very fortunate. I did have friends and family that I could rely on when I got out. And so not everyone has that. And if they don't have it, they go back to what they know. And a lot of people, they're trying so hard, even when they're in, when they're in jail, they're trying to line up what they're going to do when they get out. But if they have no resources, no one to work with on it, they end up right back in the same position they were in. And so it becomes, like I said, a never ending cycle for a lot of these people. They go in one time and it's just the rest of their life. They're in and out of jail now. Well, and I actually, in that session, I said, well, what does your probation officer say? And he said to me that the officer said, well, you shouldn't have made the mistake to begin with. And it's like, what kind of fucking answer is that? The mistake has been made. Like, there is no time machine. So how do we now move forward and allow these individuals to thrive, to be successful, to have a new chance, to have opportunities? Because ultimately, humans are humans. And as you said beautifully, they're going to go back to what they know and they're going to go back to what's familiar. So if we're not as a systemically creating a new path for these people, then how could we possibly blame them? Yeah. And that's very much the attitude in every layer of the system. So when you're first going through getting your sentencing, when you're incarcerated, when you get out, the attitude is very just, well, you did it. Now you got to deal with it, which I understand to an extent. I do understand my drug use and the things I did. 
I understand I had to make up for that. And I did. So why after doing all that, is there no additional support? I hadn't been working. So, you know, it's like, I have no job. I have no money. I did what I was told was making my debt to society and then nothing, no one to talk to. It's no wonder that people get so frustrated with the system because if they can't find a way to get the help they need, there's really no options out there for them. And so it becomes really irritating knowing that a lot of the people in the system are living with that mindset, like probation officers, police officers, even there are people who are supposed to be helping these individuals, probation officers being one of them, who their attitude is figure it out, like get a job or you're going to get put on a PO hold and you're going to get put back in jail. You can't just go work anywhere, especially if you don't have a place to live. Most places won't even take an application without some sort of address on there. You have to have a residence to be able to get a job in a lot of states. And so it's you got to have like basic support and basic resources just to be able to get back to doing what you're doing. And people who are struggling with severe mental illness probably don't have a lot of that. I know I was, like I said, I always say how fortunate I am. I'm very privileged. I had my mom. I had my wife at the time. And so I had people who were willing and able to help me as soon as I got out. So many people in the system don't have that. I remember like listening to other inmates trying to organize how they were going to do things when they got out. They were going to you know, go live with their sister. And then their sister said, no, you can't come live here because you were struggling with addiction before you went in. And so then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, I guess I have to go back to the house I was living at where everyone was using and people were like trying to get me to use. And so it's just like incredibly frustrating to know that there is that attitude through all different levels of the criminal justice system. Like you'd said, I understand whatever it has happened But at what point do we move on and let people struggling with this also move on as well, especially if they're making all the efforts to make change in their life? A lot of people see my story on like social media now and they're like, good for you. You made all the right choices. I'm like, yeah, what you don't see was all the work that had to be done with that and all the resistance I got. And a lot of the success I had was because I had a lot of support and I got very lucky with uh, social media and my ability to like become a speaker and all that. So like not everyone gets the fortunate support and the luck that I had. And it's really hard knowing that my job is an advocate and there's just so much more that needs to be done. And there isn't huge strides being made in those fields. You know, the last section of every episode is tangible tools, like things, tips and tricks and things that any listener who may relate to the topic can do right after the episode ends. What would you say are the tips and tricks that if someone who's listening, whether they've dealt with it or someone they know has mental illness, has been you know in the revolving door of the system, what can they do? The first thing I can always say is make sure that if you're someone struggling with an illness or addiction issue, address that first. You're not going to be able to do all the things you need to do in life without addressing those problems first. I know for me, I dealt with the substance abuse issue first. I handled that before I could deal with my diagnosis and my mental illness. And so you have to find a baseline to start at. And so finding out what you can address immediately 
and working off of that is kind of the best route to go. So if you're struggling with substance abuse disorder, you have to work on that before you can address the mental illness and before you can address all the other issues. And it's frustrating because people get out and people want to make all the changes, you know? You want to stop using, you want to get a diagnosis, you want to go see a doctor, you want to do all these things. If you overwhelm yourself, you're going to end up right back where you were. And so the best advice I give to someone is to address things as you can, as you are actually able to. Taking on too much, especially as a person with like severe mental illness, whether you're struggling with like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, any like serious mental illness, taking on too much is only going to make symptoms worse. It's only going to increase your stress. It's not going to end in a good result for anyone, for the person, for the family members. And so in order to address the issue, you have to start at the base of the pyramid, build a foundation, kind of work your way up and out of it. And it does take a lot of time. It's incredibly frustrating. I got out of jail in 2015. I wasn't really in a stable place until about 2020. And that's kind of when I started doing social media and I started sharing my story. I mean, that's five years of just trying to get help, trying to get a diagnosis, trying to make sure that I was able to hold on to my sobriety. It's never like an end goal either, I think is the frustrating part. Don't look at it like there's a finish line. You have to remember that, especially if it's mental health issues and addiction issues, it's a never ending thing you have to work on. Part of the reason, you know, I always say I'm a recovering addict. I haven't used drugs since 2013. So like a decade now, that doesn't mean it's not something I can just pretend I'm done with and I don't have to worry about. It's always an issue for me. It's always going to be a part of my life. And so it's always remembering to address things one at a time and then deal with the things I can, trying to find new coping mechanisms as I go along for new issues that come up. Obviously, if you're in the system, you're in jail, you're in prison, the resources are very limited. But when you get out into general population, there are so many programs. You know, as a mental health professional, there's different levels of care, whether it's residential, PHP, IOP. Like there are programs that even for low income folks, programs that take Medicaid, there's the ability to identify, okay, I'm not well. And instead of me just going back to what I know or what's familiar, Let me take the step in really addressing and treating what's happening, whether it's substance use or just primary mental health. And I think that's a beautiful tip is to you don't really need to figure out anything else until your brain is in order. Well, you got to deal with the issue at hand. And for a lot of people in the criminal justice system, the issue at hand is either serious mental illness or addiction. And so addressing that. And like you said, there are programs out there. There are resources depending on the city and state you live in, a great place to start is to ask a probation officer, hopefully someone who's, you know, willing and able to help you get those resources, but also find any way to get online and search for them because that's how I found a lot of resources. That's how I found peer support groups. That's how I found Narcotics Anonymous and Alcohol Anonymous groups. And so those resources are out there and they're almost all over the country. I'm sure there are places that are very much lacking, but most areas have those types of groups and resources. And so if it means you have to go to the library to jump on the public computer for a little bit to find some of those resources, 
They are out there. And I know it's frustrating that they're not given to you like they should be, but you have to look for them because they are there somewhere. What's another tip or trick for, you know, just anyone who feels like they're relating to this? My other piece of advice would be for anyone who's currently in or if they have a friend or family member who's currently in and they want to know how to help, ask them what kind of resources they are getting while they're incarcerated and then try to figure out if there's resources that maybe their facility is providing that they aren't aware of too. Because there are, I sometimes think, programs in place that aren't being utilized at certain jails or prisons. And sometimes family members are able to, you know, find out about those or friends are able to find out about those and ensure that, you know, it's being utilized and actually being offered to the people who are currently incarcerated. And like we talked about, a lot of this episode is having those resources available is going to be huge, but also make sure that if we start getting those resources, they're being used properly and actually being offered to the people in the facilities. Cody, I'm so grateful for this discussion. I really am. I think it's important for us to highlight the pitfalls and shortcomings of our system to really allow individuals to know the true struggle that people in the system face, inmates face. I think we as a society can be so judgmental where we're like, well, they fucked up, not our problem. And it's like, well, I think as a collective society, we need to be rooting people on and we need to have investment and optimism that, yes, this happened and this person deserves a better life. And it's up to us to allow individuals to have a better life by systemically changing how the system goes. I know there's a lot of talk around restorative justice versus criminal justice. We didn't get into that today and probably could be its own episode in itself. I really hope that anyone listening can have a little bit more compassion for people that have been incarcerated can have more of a deeper understanding of the intense challenges that people face in the system and that we need to do a better job as society. We really, really, truly do. So thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. If you like this episode, go ahead and share it with the people that you feel would benefit or relate. I deeply appreciate any reviews on Apple or Spotify and we'll catch everyone later. (laughs) 